My name is Curran Bishop, and as Preston said earlier, I'm the church planter in Milford. I'm speaking to you today in part because what we're doing this week with Impact Week, and for those of you who are visitors, I'll tell you a little bit about that. What we're doing is a celebration of Christ's body coming together to enjoy being the body, being his hands and feet in the world. We've got some people that have come from South Florida participate in that. Uh, we are a, a multi-congregational church, and so we'll be doing some things in the Hill. We'll have Wallingford people involved. We'll have Milford people involved. And we're coming together to participate in what God has called his church to be. Now, last night during our orientation, Preston read this passage from Acts 2. This is following Pentecost. We read in verse 42 of chapter 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, this week, we're creating a small picture of that in our body, Christ Presbyterian Church of Southern Connecticut, as we come together and we give of some of our most precious resources, our time, as we share together and we care for one another. Now, when we talk about being a body, the, the title I gave the sermon is Being the Body, we want to be careful to say that we're not saying we are a body of doctrine or a body of concepts and ideas. Sometimes we can get very prideful of being Presbyterian or being Reformed or being missional. But when we talk about being a body together, we're not talking about these different bodies of things we can assemble together as concepts or ideas or identities. We're talking about being the body of Christ. Let me pray for the sermon and then we'll, we'll dig into that some more. Jesus Christ, we thank you that when we come together as your body, and when we open your word together, that your spirit is present. We pray now as we work through this passage of your word in 1 Corinthians, that your spirit would guide us. That you would bind me from misleading us in some way. That you would bind each of us individually from avoiding what your text calls us to but that your spirit would open our eyes to what is truly here and would form and shape us more into your body. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask, are there any Texans in the room? A few of you. Okay, that's, that's exciting because I'm going to try and define something that I, I hope you, you, uh, you find to be a fair caricature or characterization. Um, I had a friend during college that was a Texan. And Texans have a very strong sense of identity in being Texan. I remember driving into Texas once we stopped at a rest stop, and in reading the, the kind of welcome to our state plaque, in the opening paragraph, I think they managed to mention six times that Texas is the second largest state in the country. Um, there, is, there is a very, very strong identity of what it means to be a Texan. And part of that identity, uh, according to popular lore, it is written into the Texas Constitution that Texas has the right at any time to secede from the Union and form their own republic. 
And the, the real test of your Texan-ness, if you will, is, note, when, not if, when that happens, will you return home and apply for a visa so you can continue in your current role? And most of my Texan friends assure me that there is no question. They will definitely be on the first flight, bus, whatever it takes to get home to apply for a visa to continue in their current role. Now, because of that really, really strong sense of identity, Texans, more than any other group in the country, when they go to boot camp, suffer deeply. Because in boot camp, what is, what is needed is that your identity as an individual, your identity as a graduate of your school, your identity as a member of your family, your identity as a member of your state, needs to be broken down so that you can be reformed in the image of the unit that you're participating in. Uh, you may know that one of the um, mottos of the Marine Corps is unit, core, God, country. That's to be the order of your priorities as a Marine. Your unit, first and foremost. These are the people whose back you're watching and the people who have your back. The core and the honor of the core next. After that, God. And after that, the country which the core exists to protect. Now, that's pretty sacrilegious, but it's intentionally so. Uh, there's a point that is trying to be made, that your identity before even individual personhood, note that, that you as an individual soldier, soldier don't make it to the motto, unit, core, God, country. You as an individual cease to exist. And before all of your other priorities, you are to view yourself as a member of this unit. And that's for a purpose. The unit can only serve its function. The unit can only do what it exists to do if all of its members are so committed that that is their first priority and that is their first identity. As the church, we have a similar charge. As the church, we are called to have so strong an identity in Christ that that is our primary purpose and that is our primary identity. And there's another similarity here. Uh, the core exists for a purpose. The unit exists as a portion of the core for a purpose. It exists to protect the country. That is, you know, item four of the priority list. The church exists for a purpose. The church exists as the mission of God in the world. Uh, the theologian F. Torrance puts it this way. When we think of the church as the body of Christ, we have to think of it in terms of the mission of the Son from the Father, which through the apostolic foundation is inserted into history, reaching out through the ages. In John 17, verse 18, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says to the Father, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then in John 20, his, his first words after the resurrection to the apostles are, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We exist as the body of Christ for a purpose. Now, as we dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, we see that as Paul explores this, he's dealing with a lot of problems. And I believe the reason that God gives a text like this to his church as he discusses what it means to be his body is because as people... We struggle with disunity, with individuality. And an expression of that is consumerism. Now, 
disunity can take a lot of forms. Uh, one form can be partisanship. When we start to allow some other identity to slip in and begin to supplant our identity as the people of God. We can begin to put other priorities in front of ourselves. Uh, as individuals, we are members of an incredibly individualistic culture. And the expression of individualism and consumerism teaches us to begin to look at everything around us, outside of us, as quantities that we consume for our enjoyment and our pleasure. We can do this with our families. We can see our family as something that exists to give me happiness and a sense of fulfillment. And if it's not doing that, then maybe I need to find a new family. We can see our church as consumers. We can see our church as something that gives us happiness or that fulfills certain um, spiritual needs that we feel like we have. And if we don't feel like our church is doing that, then it's time to find a new church. But a text like this challenges us to say that because we're the body of Christ, we exist for a purpose. And that as that body of Christ united by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, that is to be our primary identity. Now that's a very tall order. Uh, the, the suggestion, okay, so that's to be my primary identity. How do I get there? Well, Paul addresses that in the first paragraph. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Now, that image that he's using there of a body, it, it occurs over and over as you read through the text. He says it 19 times. For him to pick up on this is almost more meaningful for us as members of a very individualistic society than it was for his original audience. Because when you think about your priorities as a person, your body is going to rank pretty much up among the top things you can possibly think are most important to you. And so when Paul picks up that as an analogy for what the church is, it's supplanting our highest priorities. Now, you notice the, the things that are going to really speak to his culture, but that are going to have application to us. He makes the point that whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, they are baptized into one body. That Jew or Greek, he's taking the, the culture of the early church and pointing out the, the most strict dichotomy that they have there. As the Jews, the Jews understood themselves to be a special people. If you look back at Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham to be the father of the Jewish people, he says to him, I'm going to make you a nation, a people, and I'm going to give you a land. And so there's this local expression of the people even there. But then he says, and I'm going to use you to bless the world. They were a people constituted for the mission of God to bless the world and bring the world back to restore relationship with him. But as we work through redemptive history, we see over and over again that Israel was constantly confusing what, what was going on. We see in their early history, they're constantly trying to be like the other nations because the other nations seem more powerful. And so they start trying to get the trappings of the other nations, kingship and, and these other things that are going to make them look more like these other nations. With time, they begin to realize that there is something special about being Israel. But rather than seeing that specialness as their, their chosenness by God for a purpose, they begin vesting themselves with that importance. They begin saying, well, well, we have the temple system and we get that right. 
and we're doing these things properly, and we have this food code, and that makes us better than the people around us. And so in Jesus' day, as we look through the Gospels, we can see some of the arrogance of the Jews as they look down on the people around them because they know that they're God's special people because of what they do. And they're missing the point. Now, the funny thing is that in, in the early church, you have a Jewish population and a primarily Greek population, and these two groups have trouble. The Jews see a lot of superiority in themselves towards the Greeks. Well, the Greeks aren't a group without arrogance. Uh, the Greeks have this sense that they are, if you will, the gift of the gods to the known world. As Alexander, 300 years before this time, was expanding his empire throughout the known world and uniting it, the justification for the enormous carnage he was creating as he reached out into the world and brought you know, all the known nations under his banner was Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. We have this body of philosophy and art and ideas and concepts that is so important that we're reaching out into these benighted and, and stupid people groups with the glory of Greek culture. Uh, the Greek word for everyone who wasn't Greek was barbarian. And we might translate barbarian into English as babble. Uh, the, the, the onomatopoeia of that word, babble, 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 it, it sounds like you're, you're babbling. Well, the word barbarian was that they were saying, this is what the nations around us sound like when they talk. Bar, 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 bar. It doesn't mean anything. And we are coming as the, the people that hold this beautiful thing that is Greek culture, and what gives us value and purpose in the world is spreading this culture. And Paul speaks into this Jewish group that thinks that they are God's special gift to the world and this Greek group that thinks that they are the special gift of the gods to the world and saying, you are one. And more than your cultural identity, you are the body of Christ. Then he says, slaves and free. Now, when we say slavery, we immediately probably think of slavery as it was practiced in the American South. In the ancient world, this is really more talking about the social structure of society, a class system. It was a very complicated system, and slaves could actually have authority over free people, depending on who they worked for and what their role was. But your place in the class structure of society was all important to who you were. And knowing your place in that system was essential to your identity. And yet, Paul says, just as much as your Jewish or Greek cultural identity needs to be subsumed by your identity as the body of Christ, your slave or free class identity as how you fit into the world must be subsumed by the reality that you are one in Christ. You are made one body in Christ. Now, we see the, the importance of that, the significance of that, but how do we do that? How do we get there? How do we get to the now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it? Look at 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The Spirit is the means by which our individualism and our cultural identity and our racial identity and our class identity is overcome by the power of Christ as He unites us to Himself. When Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came in His incarnation, He came to accomplish salvation once for all mankind. But now, as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, comes in His ascension, He comes in His church. His church united to each other by His Spirit as His body so that we may actually function as His hands and feet in carrying out His mission. 
the greater things that Paul says the church is going to accomplish. It's not greater than salvation. It's that that redemption is being brought out to the whole of creation through his body, the church. When we talk about body, as Paul uses it in the early parts, he's making an analogy for us. But that analogy points to an ontological reality. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We have the power to do the things this passage calls us to. We have the power to have a new identity in Christ, not because we get inspired by the importance of that, but because His Spirit inside of us makes that ontological reality that we are His body more and more clear. When, when we talk about body and head, uh, the first place my mind goes is distinction. Jesus is the head, we are the body. And that's appropriate. There's a functional distinction there. But that analogy of body is important to keep in front of us. It's not that he's making a distinction so much between head and body. is that he's pointing to the union of head and body as we function in the world as Christ's body. Now, empowered by the Spirit to be the body, we're going to dig into some of the things that Paul has to say about the body. In 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong in the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, chapter 12 fits into the the argument that Paul is building in 1 Corinthians in this way. Back in chapter 10, he was talking about a problem the Corinthians were encountering. that was food sacrificed to idols. In the ancient Greek world, um, everything was religious. And even though we deny that, that that's the same in all cultures. Everything flows out of our ultimate beliefs about reality. Well, in this religious world, there was a constant sacrificing of animals to pagan gods. And one of the the major social outlets was feasts held in pagan temples. And there were believers in the Corinthian church that were saying, well, we know that these idols are just wood and stone and that they're not really anything. And so it's fine for us to go into these pagan temples and participate in these pagan feasts And, you know, we can ignore while they're making their oblations to the gods, and we can just participate in the feast. Well, the problem is for a lot of people who had been immersed in that and who were coming out of that, as these brothers and sisters participate in those feasts, the the weaker brothers and sisters are seeing that as worship. And they're being challenged in their worship of the one true God by their brothers and sisters appearing to worship these false gods. And it appears that those who are seeing themselves as stronger are completely ignoring the needs of those weaker brothers and sisters and saying, we can do whatever we want. And Paul, back in chapter 10, says, why would you do whatever you want? Why isn't it more important to you to care for the needs of those weaker brothers? As he moves on into 11, we see that the way the Corinthian church is celebrating the Lord's Supper, they're celebrating it as part of a community meal. But in that community meal, they appear to be feasting as family units, if you will. And the wealthy members are getting drunk, and the poor members have nothing to eat and are going away hungry. 
And there's a lack of concern for the body going on there. Uh, the, the section following our text, he gets into spiritual gifts. And he talks about how the way the Corinthian church is treating spiritual gifts, the people that have the more public and visible spiritual gifts are lording it over the people with the more private and perhaps supporting spiritual gifts in a way that says that the gifts are about them. And you see this consistently happening. Back with food sacrifice to idols. Well, it's about me. I can do what I want because I have Jesus. With the Lord's Supper, it's, it's about me. I've got the Jesus now, and so I can, I can do what I want. With the gifts, the gifts are about how cool I am as an individual believer. And they're completely missing the fact that all of this exists for the mission of the body. And when we see ourselves as individuals, and when we put our individual needs and desires and wants and perspective ahead of those of those around us, we miss the opportunity to be the body. For us as, a, as an individualistic culture, there's, there's clearly a, an attack on our individualism, our consumerism. A need for us to be able to realize that as a man or as a woman or as a Caucasian or a black person or Hispanic or Asian, God has made us in a way, and, and note about the way these, um, these are set up in 15 and 16, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it's the seemingly lesser part saying of the seemingly more important part, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. You were made with the portions of your reality, the gift set that you have, to be a blessing to the body. As the body, we need the diversity of perspectives that God has placed in the body in order to more fully reflect His image as His body. Uh, the, the fact that on Sunday mornings is the most um, racially segregated time in American culture is, is an indictment of the American church. So we want to, as a diverse body, value each other and bring the gifts and the perspective and the uniqueness that he has endowed us with into that mix, not as a symbol of how great or cool we are as individuals, but as an opportunity to serve the body. The next thing I want us to notice about this passage is that as a body, we're a body that cares for its disadvantaged. Look at verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, whereas back in 14 and 15, we saw that there was a, a sense of, of he's repealing that, oh, don't say, I'm not worthy, acknowledge that you have a valuable contribution to make in the body. Here he's speaking to those that are saying, well, you're not worthy. My gifts are more special, and so I'm the more important member, and saying that isn't true either. That's not appropriate. During seminary, Abby and I took a, a course on how mentally handicapped people can be included in the ministry of the church. And in the, the, the book that they used for that course, Same Lake, Different Boat, the, the lady that was involved in that ministry was pointing out to us that mentally handicapped people 
that it's, it's very easy for, you know, the majority of us are, are not mentally handicapped. It's very easy for us to look on them as lesser members of the faith, uh, people that are less equipped than we are to comprehend the glories of the truths of Scripture. And yet their point is that as a mentally handicapped person, there is a different set of struggles that that person encounters, a different set of realities that in some way make them better able to perceive aspects of what it is to be made in God's image, what it is to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in our lives. There was a fairly evangelical Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen who was a, a very, if you will say, a, a decorated person. He, he was a very gifted mind. He'd written a lot of bestsellers. At some point in, life, in his life, he became convicted about this need. And so he went and became a, a worker in um, a group home and set aside his, his training and his education and so on to say, I'm going to simply work as a worker in this group home for mentally handicapped people. And one of the individuals there, his name was Adam, uh, he really connected with. And he wrote a book detailing what he had learned about his faith and about God from Adam. I'm going to read a quote from that book. It's called Adam, God's Beloved. And he's talking about his friend, a mentally handicapped man named Adam that lived at the group home, not Adam, you know, the, the parent of, of all living. Um, Adam was sent to bring good news to the world. It was his mission, as it was the mission of Jesus. Adam was, very simply, quietly, and uniquely, there. He was a person who by his very life announced the marvelous mystery of our God. I am precious, beloved, whole, and born of God. Adam bore silent witness to this mystery, which has nothing to do with whether or not he could speak, walk, or express himself. Whether or not he made money, had a job, was fashionable, famous, married, or single. It had to do with his being. He was and is a beloved child of God. It is the same news that Jesus came to announce. And it's the news that all those who are poor keep proclaiming in and through their very weakness. Life is a gift. Each one of us is unique, known by name, and loved by the one who fashioned us. Unfortunately, there's a very loud, consistent, and powerful message coming to us from our world that leads us to believe that we must prove our belovedness by how we look, by what we have, and by what we can accomplish. We become preoccupied with making it in this life, and we're very slow to grasp the liberating truth of our origins and our finality. We need to hear the message announced and see the message embodied over and over again. Only then do we find the courage to claim it and to live from it. Adam, as God's child, redeemed by the blood of Christ, united to the body by the Holy Spirit, is made whole, even if that doesn't mean that his mind is made completely normal. And as such, those of us whose minds are normal have much to learn from someone like Adam who can learn to trust and love his Savior. Another side of this. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I had a member who said that, uh, sorry, a mentor who said that one of his complaints with euthanasia, with a person who is old and suffering, choosing to end their life, is that that person is denying the rest of the body the opportunity to benefit from their suffering. 
as we take on that suffering with them, as we bear that suffering, as we watch them suffer in Christ and teach us in their suffering what it is to rely on Christ in the midst of suffering. There's this incredible reality of what it is to be these different members of the body coming together, teaching one another by our dependence. We have this tendency to to seek our own comfort, to seek people that have a similarity of perspective with us, and to avoid people that are different from us, people that seem more needy to us, people that that seem to have a, a different set of realities. This passage calls us to appreciate those differences. Um, As a a largely middle-class church, we have a need to appreciate that people that don't know where the money for the next bill is coming from have a different understanding of what it means to trust God than a person like me who tends to rely more on my resources. Um, As a church that is majority Caucasian, we need to be aware that members of minorities have a different experience of living in our world than we do, and we need to be humble and say, I'm going to be the student when a member of minority talks to me about the difficulties that they face as a member of a minority group. That's part of my learning in the school of the body of Christ. And it's not just a matter of of hearing each other from time to time. Uh, to begin to grow in that reality, to begin to be shaped by that, we have to live alongside of each other. We have to live life together. Uh, we're doing this impact week as a celebration of being able to come together from all different races and all different socioeconomic stratas and serve each other. But it's not something we do once a year as an absolution for just being ourselves the rest of the year. It's something that's supposed to be the schoolroom for us of our lives together, as we live alongside of each other, as as the realities of those of you that are getting to participate in this coming week of doing mercy ministry to each other, of serving children in the hill, of coming together frequently for fellowship, as that paints the picture for us of our corporate life as the body, as we see opportunities to serve each other throughout the year. I'll conclude with one more picture for us. Uh, Brian Fickert was one of my professors in college. He's the head of the Chalmers Center, which is an economic development agency, and I, I'm not sure, I know he was in Yale at the same time that this church was. I believe he might have worshipped here at one time. Um, Brian was in the Kibera slum outside of Nairobi. It's the world's largest slum. And he was taking a tour with some local missionaries who were doing work there, and they came upon a church that was worshiping God. And so they came and joined in the worship service. And he said when he came in, immediately, and this is a a problem that often in in Africa, that particularly East Africans struggle with, is that they have been taught to view uh, white people, colonial people, as better than they are. And so as soon as he came into the church, they asked him if he'd preach a sermon. And he said, sure, he'd do that. And as a person that had had a lot of education, as a member of a Reformed Church who had received lots of teaching over the course of many years, he said it was fairly easy for him to be able to pull a God-honoring sermon on a particular text out of his back pocket, if you will. But before he preached, they prayed together. And as he listened to the prayers of these people, one woman said, pray for me because when I go home, my husband is going to beat me because I was at church. 
Another person said, pray for me because I don't know what I'm going to feed my children tonight. As he listened to these prayers, he came to this realization. I put it in the, the reflection at the beginning of the bulletin. As I listened to these people praying to be able to live another day, I thought about my ample salary, my life insurance policy, my health insurance policy, my two cars, my house, etc. I realized that I would not really trust in God's sovereignty on a daily basis, as I have sufficient buffers in place to shield me from most economic shocks. I realized that when these folks pray the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, their minds not wander as mine so often does. I realize that while I have sufficient education and training to deliver a sermon on God's sovereignty with no forewarning, these slum dwellers were trusting in God's sovereignty just to get them through the day. And I realized that these people had a far deeper intimacy with God than I probably will ever have in my entire life. We, the body of Christ, need each other as the hands and feet and mouth of Christ, speaking into our lives by His Spirit to weld us into a unit that is able to carry out His mission in the world. His mission of caring for each other. His mission of proclaiming the reality of His redemption to our world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you as your body. Not because of our knowledge. Not because of our willingness to sacrifice our time. Not because of any of the, the gifts that you have given us that we often use to puff ourselves up. But because you have died and risen again to reconcile us to the Father. And because you have sent your Spirit to unite us to you. As you did back at Pentecost, and we saw in Acts 2 the church coming together as that mission of your presence in the world, so unite us by your Spirit that we grow in our ability to be the picture to the world of your body. Loving, serving, sacrificing, suffering, and rejoicing together. We pray this in your name.